Is there such a thing as binge shopping? Would you take better care of your clothes if you knew who made them? How can you escape in a pair of shoes you can't walk in? On this Selected Shorts, we offer answers to these questions. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Stay with me. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. The three works on this program offer three unusual perspectives on clothes and fashion, selling, making, and buying. In one, a saleswoman becomes a compulsive consumer. In the second, we hear about a role in the garment industry that's usually overlooked. In the third, shopping is an antidote to aging. When I think about going clothes shopping with my friends when I was young, usually to buy something called a Huckapoo blouse, don't ask, but I loved them, I think about the mall we went to, the Walt Whitman Mall, which probably explains why I am a writer. Is there a greater oxymoron than the Walt Whitman Mall? I've tried to come up with one for you, and here it is. The Edna St. Vincent Millay Water Park. Our first story is by the pithy and provocative Irish writer Anne Enright. She's the author of 11 novels, including Actress and The Gathering, which won the 2007 Man Booker Prize for Fiction, and story collections including Yesterday's Weather. She Owns Everything is a sort of retail-based tragic comedy. An ordinary saleswoman at a Dublin department store is the obliging, docile instrument of other people's purchases until a handbag changes everything. Anne Enright seems to have access to interesting and stylized language as if it were all laid out before her like items on display in a shop. She Owns Everything is performed by the Tony Award-winning actor Mary Louise Parker, whose many stage credits include The Sound Inside and How I Learned to Drive. On television, she's appeared most recently on Billions. Here she is with the shopping spree of the century. She owns everything. Kathy was often wrong. She found it more interesting. She was wrong about the taste of bananas. She was wrong about the future of the bob. She was wrong about where her life ended up. She loved corners, surprises, changes of light. Of all the fates that could have been hers, spinster, murderer, savant, saint, she chose to work behind a handbag counter in Dublin, take her holidays in the sun. For 10 years, she lived with the gloves and beside the umbrellas, their colors shy and neatly furled. The handbag counter traveled through navy and brown to a classic black. Yellows, reds, and white were to one side, all varieties of plastic left out on the stands for the customer to steal. Kathy couldn't tell you what the handbag counter was like. It was hers. It smelled like a leather dream. It was never quite right. Despite the close and intimate spaces of the gloves and the empty generosity of the bags themselves, the discreet mess that was the handbag counter was just beyond her control. 
She sold clutch bags for people to hang on to, folded slivers of animal skin that wouldn't hold a box of cigarettes or money unless it was paper or a bunch of keys. Just a credit card and a condom, said one young woman to another, and Kathy felt the ache of times changing. She sold the handbag proper, sleek and stiff, surprisingly roomy, the favorite bag, the thoroughbred, with a hard clasp or a fold-over flap and the smell of her best perfume. She sold sacks to young women in canvas or in suede, baggy enough to hold a life, a change of underwear, a novel, a deodorant spray. The women's faces, as they made their choice, were full of lines going nowhere, tense with the problems of leather, price, vulgarity, color. Kathy matched blue eyes with a blue trim, a modest mouth with smooth plum suede. She sold patent to the click of high heels, urged women who had forgotten into neat swish reticules. Quietly, one customer after another was guided to the inevitable and surprising choice of a bag that was not quite them, but one step beyond who they thought they might be. Kathy knew what handbags were for. She herself carried everything, which wasn't much, in one pocket or the other. She divided her women into two categories, those who could, those who could not. She had little affection for those who could. They had no need of her, and they were often mistaken. Their secret was not one of class, although that seemed to help, but one of belief. And like all questions of belief, it involved certain mysteries. How, for example, does one believe in navy? But there were also the women who could not. A woman, for example, who could not wear blue. A woman who could wear print, but not beside her face. A woman who could wear beads, but not earrings. A woman who had a secret life of shoes too exotic for her. Or one who could neither pass her perfume counter nor buy a perfume unless it was for someone else. A woman who comes home with royal jelly every time she tries to buy a blouse. A woman who cries in the lingerie department. A woman who laughs while trying on hats. A woman who buys two coats of a different color. The problem became vicious when they brought their daughter shopping with them. <laughs> Kathy could smell these couples coming all the way from kitchenware. <laughs> Kathy married late and it was hard work. She had to find a man. Once she'd found one, she discovered that the city was full of them. <laughs> she had to talk and laugh and be fond. She had to choose. Did she like big burly men with soft brown eyes? Did she like that blonde man with the eyes of a pathological blue? What did she think of her own face? It's notches and dents. In the end, she went the easy road with a kind teacher from Fairview and a registry office due. She stole him from a cultish young woman with awkward eyes. Kathy would have sold her a tapestry Gladstone bag, one that was wrong but worked all the same. <laughs> Sex was a pleasant surprise. Such a singular activity. It seemed to scatter and gather her at the same time. Kathy fell in love one day with a loose, rangy woman who came to her counter and to her smile 
and seemed to pick her up with the same ease as she did an Argentinian calfskin shoulder bag and tobacco brown with woven leather inset panels, pigskin lining, and a snap clasp. <laughs> it was quite a surprise. The woman, whose eyes were a tired shade of blue, asked Kathy's opinion, and Kathy heard herself say, dive right in, honey, the water's just fine, a phrase she must have picked up from the television set. The woman did not flinch, she said, have you got it in black? Brown was the color of the bag. Kathy was disappointed by this betrayal. <laughs> the weave would just disappear in black. The staining was everything. Kathy said, it's worth it in brown, even if it means new shoes. It really is a beautiful bag. The woman, however, neither brought the brown nor argued for the black. She rubbed the leather with the base of her thumb. As she laid the bag down, she looked at Kathy. She despaired. She turned her wide, sporting shoulders, her dry, bleached hair, and her nose with the bump in it, gave a small sigh, and walked out of the shop. Kathy spent the rest of the day thinking, not of her hands with their large knuckles, but of her breasts that were widely spaced and looked two ways, one towards the umbrellas, the other at the scarves. She also wondered whether the woman had a necklace of lines hanging from her hips, whether she'd ever been touched by a woman, what she might say, what Kathy might say back, whether her foldings and infoldings were the same as her own, or as different as Daffodil from Narcissus, it was a very exciting afternoon. <laughs> Kathy began to slip. She made mistakes. She sold the wrong bags to the wrong women. Her patter died. She waited for another woman to pick up the tobacco brown bag to see what might happen. She sold indiscriminately. She looked at every woman who came her way, and she just didn't know anymore. She could, of course, change her job. She could drive a bus. She could work as a hospital maid in, for example, the cardiac ward, which was full of certainties because women did not get heart attacks. They would come at visiting time and talk too much or not at all. She could work out who loved simply or in silence. She could spot those who might as well hate. She would look at their bags without judgment as they placed them on the coverlets or open them for tissues. They might even let a tear drip inside. Kathy emptied out her building society account and walked up to the hat department with a plastic bag filled with cash. She said, Ramona, I want to buy every hat you have. She did the same at shoes, although she stipulated size five and a half. She didn't make a fuss when refused. She stuffed the till of her own counter full of notes, called a taxi, and hung herself with bags around her neck and down her arms. All kinds of people looked at her. Then she went to bed for a week, feeling slightly ashamed. She kept the one fatal bag, the brown calfskin with a snap clasp. She abused it. She even used it to carry things. She started to sleep around.
Parker performed Anne Enright's She Owns Everything. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Enright is such a nuanced storyteller, often writing with matter-of-factness about extreme circumstances, such as how political loyalties can erode families. Here, the story is outsized and comedic, but you can also sense the desperation under the surface. The word that comes to mind is unraveling, which is something that people sometimes do when they've had too much or gone too far, and which clothes and accessories also do when they've served their purpose too long. I always pay close attention in a story to the descriptions of clothing and accessories. Chances are, in the hands of an exceptionally good writer, they're more than decoration. They might also be clues. Our next work also asks us to look past the surface, but this time it's the surface of our own lives as consumers. There's a long chain leading back from the moment you pull that blouse off the sale rack at that boutique you can't stop going into. In their fascinating and mindful book, Women in Clothes, Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julevitz, and Leanne Shapton featured an interview with someone at the beginning of that chain, an East Asian woman who assembles high-end lingerie. Hetty is a writer whose recent works include Pure Color and A Garden of Creatures. Heidi Julevitz is the author of novels including The Uses of Enchantment and was founding editor of the journal The Believer. Leanne Shapton is an artist and writer whose most recent work includes I Could Drink a Case of You, a Joni Mitchell grocery list. Other illustrated works include Guestbook and Toys Talking. She has contributed to Granta and Harper's, among other magazines. Clothes on the Ground, a conversation with Liap, a garment worker in Cambodia, was reported by Julia Wallace, a journalist based in Cambodia who had conducted many interviews with garment workers, but as she's commented, had never thought to ask them what they wore. The interview is performed by Jennifer Lim, an actress best known for her work in David Henry Wong's Chinglish. Other stage appearances include This Isn't Romance and The World of Extreme Happiness. On television, she's appeared in the series Hell on Wheels. Jennifer Lim reads Clothes on the Ground, a conversation with Liap, a garment worker in Cambodia. Liap. Wearing a bright pink top with ruffles down the front and gathered sleeves and a skirt printed with butterflies and strewn with glitter. I started working when I was 22 years old, and now I am 35. Because we were poor and my family had only a small plot of land for doing rice farming, and especially because I was single and had no husband to feed me, I left my home province. Since then, I have jumped from one factory to another. Now I'm at a factory producing underwear and bras, where I have worked for just over four months. I work between eight and 10 hours a day at a factory owned by Koreans. It produces underwear for export, but I don't know the brand of bras I make since I can only read Khmer. I just know it is expensive, since it's a world brand name. I'm in charge of sewing a row of double stitches on the underside of the bras, like the bottom part of the cup. I make around 110 US dollars each month, which is my salary plus overtime. I'm a widow. My husband passed away about three months ago and left me behind with two daughters. They stay with my mother in my home province, Kampong Tom. Of course, it's not a happy life being separated from my kids, but I have to have a job, to make money, to send home and support them. 
I rarely meet them in person, but I talk to them on the phone a lot. The last time I saw them, it was during Water Festival, about four months ago. I go home in a tourist van, a 12-seat van crammed with 20 or more passengers, a common means of rural transportation. Farming rice is physically more difficult than garment work, and it can be uncertain, but at the end of the rice harvest, we usually have some stock left over. As a garment worker, we have a secure, long-term job, but it doesn't seem to make life better. There's not enough left over at the end of the month to save. Being here, everything is money. My salary goes to utility fees, accommodation, and transportation to the factory. After all my spending, I can usually send my family only $15 to $17.50 per month. I don't have a bank account, so I send it through a taxi driver who charges $1.25 to take the money to Kampong Tom. The worst is that I have to live separate from my children. But I can't go back yet. I want to have money to buy a plot of land first. I just want to get a little savings so I can get back home with my family and my children and buy a small plot of farmland and rely on farming to feed my children. My own everyday clothes I buy from street markets or kromchat. I sometimes joke and call them clothes on the ground because even though they're under the umbrella, they're piled up on the ground. They usually sell them in this area on the weekend only, since on weekdays we're too busy and nobody would buy them. When I go shopping, I don't prefer any design or style, but I look for cheap clothes that are not sexy. I mean, I want them to cover my entire body. I want decent clothes. I am a Khmer woman, and it doesn't look good to show off my top or my bottom, my chest or my hips. My clothes are simple. I have around 10 shirts, including t-shirts, and around five pairs of pants. I have three skirts. My favorite and most expensive outfit is the one I'm wearing today. I love the style of the ruffle on my shirt and the bright color. It cost $2. My skirt cost $2.50, and I got it at the market in Kampong Tom. I was attracted by the sparkles near the hip and the butterflies. My other clothes are just ordinary fabric with no specific sparkling materials. I don't wear the bras I sew. I just buy the cheap ones from Komchat. I pay around 60 cents for a bra. It's new, but not a quality bra. The bras I sew and the ones I wear are quite different. I sew my bras very carefully, and the stitches are very tiny and strong with good quality thread. But the bra I wear is very bad quality, and the thread is not double-stitched. It's sewn with larger stitches. Because I sew every day, I know that the quality is totally different. While I am sewing bras, I often think about whether or not I could ever wear a bra like the ones I make. The bras I make are very beautiful, with a variety of quality fabric, and I sew them very well. The fabric is good. It's so soft, and it will make the person who wears it feel cool and comfortable. 
I used to think that if I could have one quality and beautiful bra like I make, I would be really happy and I would be very beautiful. But it's impossible. These bras are for export, and the price of one of the bras I make is almost equal to my salary. While working, I hold the bra up in front of my face. Then I ask myself, who is the woman who will wear the bra I am sewing? I also wonder how the women in these countries are so rich and lucky to wear these expensive bras, while the person who makes that bra just wears a very cheap one bought from the pile of clothes on the ground under the umbrella. So I feel jealous. Jennifer Lim read Clothes on the Ground, a conversation with Liap, a garment worker in Cambodia, from the compendium Women in Clothes by Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julevitz, and Leanne Shapton. I'm Meg Wallitzer. What I like so much about this piece is the dignity conveyed by this woman and the interest and respect imparted by Wallace. You know that Liap is part of a mass of people who are probably regarded simply as mechanisms, a means to an end. But now she's been made specific a woman in a cheap t-shirt making something she will never wear and speaking about it in a way that is honest and surprising. When we return, red shoes. No, not those red shoes, the ones in the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale and then the movie that turn out to be such a disaster for the heroine when she can't take them off and can't stop dancing and, spoiler alert, dies. I know, I shouldn't say spoiler alert and not even give you time to turn off the radio or podcast, so sorry. But anyway, this is a totally different pair. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Our first two pieces asked us to consider consumerism, particularly as it relates to clothing. Feeling a little sheepish? Why do you have ten handbags in your closet? Never mind. There's one thing you can consume without guilt. Selected Shorts. If you missed the first half of the show or want to find out more about us, go to selectedshorts.org. While you're there, click the subscribe button so you'll have immediate access to every episode when it's released. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review or some fashion advice. We're listening to works about fashion and clothes and what fashion and clothes might mean other than something you insert yourself into each day. Fashion can be a trap. But our final story, Faith and Hope Go Shopping by Joanne Harris, imagines it as a form of liberation. Harris is best known as the author of the Chocolat series of books, source of the charming film with the same name. She's also a prolific writer of young adult fiction and fantasy, most recently A Narrow Door. But Faith and Hope, yes, that's what we call subtext, are closer to the end of life. They are two women who have befriended one another in an old age home. 
In the home, Faith and Hope are constrained and condescended to and fed rice pudding. Their one escape is looking through fashion magazines and lusting vicariously after clothes and accessories. But one day, they try something bolder. These women are stronger together, and we enjoy finding out why. You don't want to miss this reading by longtime shorts actor Lois Smith, who is over 90 years old and gave a youthful and energetic performance, captivating the audience and bringing them along for the ride. Smith's credits include her Tony-winning 2021 performance in The Inheritance. Recently, she starred as the heiress in Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch and in television shows including Ray Donovan. Here she is with Joanne Harris's Faith and Hope Go Shopping. Faith and hope go shopping. It's Monday, so it must be rights pudding again. It's not so much the fact that they're careful of our teeth here at the Meadow Bank home, rather a general lack of imagination. As I told Claire the other day, there are lots of things you can eat without having to chew. Oysters, foie gras, avocados vinaigrette, strawberries and cream, creme brulee with vanilla and buttonate. Why then this succession of bland puddings and gummy meats? Claire, the sulky blonde, always chewing a wad of gum, looked at me as if I were mad. <laughs> Fancy food, they claim. Upsets the stomach. God forbid our remaining taste buds should be overstimulated. I saw hope, <laughs> grinning, around the last mouthful of ocean pie. I knew she'd heard me. Hope may be blind, but she's no slouch. Faith and hope. With names like that, we might be sisters. Kelly, that's the one with the exaggerated lip liner, thinks we're quaint. <laughs> Chris sometimes sings to us when he's cleaning out the rooms. Faith, hope, and charity. Ha! He's the best of them, I suppose, cheery and irreverent. He's always in trouble for talking to us. He wears tight T-shirts and an earring. I tell him the last thing we want is charity. That makes him laugh. Hinge and bracket, he calls us, Butch and Sundance. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad place here. It's just so ordinary and not the comfortable ordinariness of home with its familiar grime and clutter but that of waiting rooms and hospitals, a pastel detergent place with a smell of air freshener, distant bedpans. We don't get many visitors as a rule. I'm one of the lucky ones, my son Tom. He calls every fortnight with my magazines and a bunch of croissants. The last ones were yellow. And any news he thinks won't upset me, but he isn't much of a conversationalist. Are you keeping well then, Mom? Yep comment or two about the garden. That's about all he can manage, but he means well. And as for Hope, oh, she's been here five years, even longer than me. She hasn't had a visitor yet. Last Christmas, I gave her a box of my chocolates and told her they were from her daughter in California, and she gave me one of her sardonic little smiles. If that's from Priscilla, sweetheart, she said primly, then you're Ginger Rogers. 
And I laughed at that. I've been in a wheelchair for 20 years, and the last time I did any dancing was just before men stopped wearing hats. <laughs> we manage, though. Hope pushes me around in my chair, and I direct her. Not that there is much directing to do in here. She can get around just by using the ramps, but the nurses like to see us using our resources. It fits in with their waste-not-want-not ethic. And of course I read to her. <laughs> Hope loves stories. In fact, she's the one who started me reading in the first place. We've had Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice and Dr. Zhivago. There aren't many books here, but the library van comes around every four weeks, and we send Lucy out to get us something nice. Lucy is a college student on work experience, so she knows what to choose. Hope was furious when she wouldn't let us have Lolita. <laughs> Lucy thought it wouldn't suit us. One of the greatest writers in the 20th century, and you thought it wouldn't suit us? Hope used to be a professor at Cambridge and still has that imperious twang in her voice sometimes. But I could tell Lucy wasn't really listening. They get that look, even the brighter ones, that nursery nurse smile which says, I know better, I know better, because you're old. It's the rice pudding all over again, Hope tells me. Rice pudding for the soul. If Hope taught me to appreciate literature, it was I who introduced her to magazines. They've been my passion for years. Fashion glossies, society pages, restaurant reviews, film releases. I started her out on book reviews, slyly taking her off guard with an article here or a fashion page there. And we found I had quite a talent for description, and now we wade deliciously together through the pages of Bright Ephemera moaning over Cartier diamonds and Chanel lipsticks and lush, impossible clothes. It's strange, really. I think Hope was more elegant than I was. When I was young, those things didn't really interest me. After all, she had college balls, academy parties, summer picnics on the backs. And of course, now we're both the same. <laughs> Nursing home chic. Things tend to be communal here. Some people forget what belongs to them, and so there's a lot of pilfering. I carry my nicest things with me in the rack under my wheelchair. I have my money and what's left of my jewelry hidden in the seat cushion. I'm not supposed to have money here. There's, there's nothing to spend it on. We're not allowed out unaccompanied. There's a combination lock on the front door, some people try to slip out when visitors leave. Mrs. McAllister, 92 spry and mad as a hatter, keeps escaping. She thinks she's going home. It must have been the shoes that began it. Slick, patent, candy apple red with heels that went on forever. I found them in one of my magazines and cut out the picture. 
Sometimes I brought it out and looked at it in private, feeling dizzy and a little foolish. I don't know why. It wasn't as if it were a picture of a man or anything like that. They were only shoes. Hope and I wear the same kind of shoes. Lumpy leatherette slip-ons and porridge beige. <laughs> Eminently, indisputably suitable. But in secret, we moan over Manola Blahniks with six-inch perspec heels, or <laughs> Gina Mules in fashion suede, or Jimmy Choo's in hand-painted silk. It was absurd, of course, but I wanted those shoes with a fierceness that almost frightened me. I wanted just once to step out into the glossy, gleeful pages of one of my magazines, to taste the recipes, to see the films, read the books. To me, the shoes represented all of that. Their cheery, brazen redness, their frankly impossible heels. Shoes made for anything. Lolling, lounging, prowling strutting, flying, anything but walking. <laughs> I kept the picture in my purse, occasionally taking it out and unfolding it like a map to a secret treasure. Didn't take hope long to find out I was hiding something. I know it's stupid, I said. Maybe I'm going peculiar. I'll probably end up like Mrs. Banerjee wearing 10 overcoats and stealing people's underwear. Hope laughed at that. I don't think so, Faith. I understand you perfectly well. She felt on the table in front of her for her teacup, and I knew better than to guide her hand. You want to do something unsuitable. I want a copy of Lolita. You want a pair of red shoes. Both of those things are equally unsuitable for people like us. She drew a little closer lowering her voice. Is there an address on the page? There was, I told her, a Knightsbridge address. It might as well have been Australia. Hey, Butch and Sundance, it was cheery Chris who'd come to clean the windows, planning a heist. Hope smiled. No, Christopher, she said shyly, an escape. <laughs> we planned it with the furtive cunning of prisoners of war. <laughs> and we had one great advantage, the element of surprise. We were not habitual escapees like Mrs. McAllister, but trustees nicely lucid and safely immobile. <laughs> there would have to be a diversion, I suggested. Something that would bring the duty nurse away from the desk, leaving the entrance unguarded, Hope took to waiting by the door, listening to the sound of the numbers being pressed on the keypad until she was almost certain that she could duplicate the combination. We timed it with the precision of old campaigners. At nine minutes to nine on Friday morning, I picked up one of Mr. Bannerman's cigarette butts from the common room and hid it in the paper-filled metal bin in my room. At eight minutes, two, Hope and I were in the lobby on our way to the breakfast room. Ten seconds later, as I'd expected, the sprinkler went off. 
on our corner, I could hear Mrs. McAllister screaming, fire, fire. <laughs> Kelly was on duty. Clever Lucy might have remembered to secure the doors. Thick Claire might not have left the desk at all, but Kelly grabbed the fire extinguisher from the wall, ran toward the noise. Hope pushed me toward the door, felt for the keypad. It was seven minutes to nine. Hurry, she'll be back any minute. Shh. Got it. I knew one day I'd find a use for those music lessons they gave me as a child. <laughs> the door slid open. We crunched out onto sunlit gravel. This was where Hope would need my help. No ramps here in the real world. I tried not to stare, mesmerized at the sky, the trees. Tom hadn't taken me out of the building for over six months. Straight ahead, turn left, stop, there's a pothole in front of us. Take it easy, left, again. I remembered a bus stop just in front of the gates. The buses were like clockwork, five, two, and 25 past the hour. You could hear them from the common room, honking and ratcheting like cranky pensioners for a dreadful moment. I was convinced the bus stop had gone. There were roadworks where it had once stood, bollards lined the curb. And then I saw it 50 yards further down, a temporary bus stop on a shortened metal post. The bus appeared at the brow of the hill, huffing. Quick, full speed ahead. And Hope reacted quickly. Her legs are long, muscular still. She did ballet as a child. I leaned forward, clutching my purse tightly and held out my hand. Behind us, I heard a cry. Glancing back at the windows of the Meadowbank home, I saw Kelly at my bedroom window, her mouth wide open, yelling something. <laughs> For a second, I wasn't sure the bus would even take an old lady in a wheelchair, but it was hospital circular and there was a special ramp. The driver gave us a look of indifference, waved us aboard, and then Hope and I were on the bus, <laughs> clinging to each other like giddy schoolgirls, laughing. And people looked at us, but mostly without suspicion. And a little girl smiled at me. I realized how long ago it was since I'd seen anyone young. We got off at the railway station. With some of the money from the chair cushion, I bought two tickets to London. I panicked for a moment when the ticket man asked for my pass. But Hope told him in her Cambridge professor's voice that we would pay the full fare. The ticket man rubbed his head for a minute and then shrugged, please yourself, he said. The train was long and smelled of coffee and burnt rubber. I guided Hope along the platform to where the guard had let down a ramp. Going to the smoke, are we, ladies? The guard sounded a little like Chris, his cap pushed back cockily from his forehead. Let me take that for you, love, he said to Hope, meaning the wheelchair, but Hope shook her head. I can manage, thank you. Straight up, old girl, I told her. I saw the guard noticing Hope's blind eyes, but he didn't say anything. I was glad neither of us can stand that kind of thing. The piece of paper with the Knightsbridge address was still in my purse. And as we sat in the guard's van with coffee and scones brought to us by a cheery guard, I unfolded it again. Hope heard me doing it and smiled. 
Is it ridiculous? I asked her, looking at the shoes, again, shiny and red as Lolita lollies. <laughs> are we ridiculous? Of course we are, she answered serenely, <laughs> sipping her coffee. And isn't it fun? <laughs> it only took three hours to get down to London. I was expecting much longer, but trains, like everything else, move faster nowadays. We drank coffee again, talked to the guard, whose name was not Chris, I learned, but Barry. And I described what countryside I could see to Hope while it blurred past at top speed. It's all right, Hope reassured me. You don't have to do it all now. Just see it first, and then we'll go over it together in our own time when we get back. It was nearly lunchtime when we arrived in London. King's Cross was much bigger than I'd imagined at all glass and glorious grime. I tried to see it as well as I could while directing hope through the crowds of people of all colors and ages. For a few moments, even hope seemed disoriented, and we dithered on the platform, wondering where all the porters had gone. Everyone but us seemed to know exactly where they were going, and people with briefcases jostled against the chairs as we stood trying to work out where to go, and I began to feel some of my courage erode. Oh, hope, I whispered. I, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. But hope was undeterred. Rubbish, she said bracingly. There'll be taxis over there where the draft is coming from. She pointed to our left where I did see a sign high above our heads which read way out. We'll do what everyone does here. We'll get a cab. Onward. And at that, we pushed right through the mess of people on the platform, Hope saying, excuse me, in her Gamebridge voice, me remembering to direct her. I checked my purse again, and Hope chuckled, but this time I wasn't looking at the picture. 250 pounds had seemed like inexpressible riches at the Meadowbank home, but the train fare taught me that prices, too, had speeded up during our years away from the world. I wondered if we'd have enough. The taxi driver was surly and reluctant. Lifting the chair into the black cab while Hope steadied me, I'm not as slim as I was. It was almost too much for her, but we managed. How about lunch? I suggested too brightly to take away the sour taste of the driver's expression. Hope nodded. Anywhere that doesn't do rice pudding, she said wryly. <laughs> Is Fortnum and Mason still there? I asked the driver. Yes, darling, and the British Museum, he said, revving his engine impatiently. <laughs> Best place for you two, I thought I heard him mutter. <laughs> Unexpectedly, Hope chuckled. <laughs> Maybe we'll go there next, she said meekly. That set me off as well. And the driver gave us both a suspicious glance and pulled away into the traffic, still muttering, there are some places that can survive anything. Fortnum's is one of these. A little antechamber of heaven, glittering with sunken treasures. When all civilizations have collapsed, Fortnum's will still be there with its genteel doormen and glass chandeliers, the last untouchable, legendary defender of the faith. We entered on the first floor through mountains of chocolates and cohorts of candied fruits. The air was cool and creamy with vanilla and allspice and peach. 
Hope turned her head gently, side to side, breathing in the perfume. There were truffles and caviar and foie gras in tiny tins, giant demijones of green plums in aged brandy, and cherries the color of my Knightbridge shoes. There were quails, eggs, and nougatines, and long de shot in rice paper packets, and champagne bottles in gleaming battalions. We took the lift to the top floor and the cafe, where Hope and I drank Earl Grey from China cups, remembering Meadowbank Homes' plastic tea service and giggling. I ordered recklessly for both of us, <laughs> trying not to think of my diminishing savings, smoked salmon, scrambled eggs on muffins light as puffs of air, tiny canopies of rolled anchovy and sun-dried tomatoes, parma ham with slices of pink melon, apricot and chocolate parfait, like a delicate caress. If heaven is anything like as nice as this, murmured Hope, send me there right now. <laughs> Even the obligatory bathroom stop was a revelation. Clean, gleaming tiles, flowers, Fluffy pink towels, scented hand cream, perfume. I sprayed Hope with freezes and looked at us both in one of the big shiny mirrors. I'd expected us to look drab and maybe a little foolish in our nursing home cardies and sensible skirts, and maybe we did. But to me, we looked changed, gilded. For the first time, I could see Hope as she must have been. I could see myself. We spent a long time in Fortnum's. We visited floors of hats and scarves and handbags and dresses. I imprinted them all into my memory to bring them out later with hope. She wheeled me patiently through forests of lingerie and coats and evening frocks like a breath of summer, letting her thin, elegant fingers trail over silks and furs. Reluctantly, we left. The streets were marvelous, but lacked sparkle. And looking at the people rushing past us, haughty or indifferent, once again, I was almost afraid. We hailed a taxi. I was getting nervous now. A prickle of stage fright ran up my spine, and I unfolded the paper again. Its folds whitened by much handling. And once more, I felt drab and old. What if the shop assistant wouldn't let me in? And what if they laughed at me? And worse still was the suspicion, the certainty, that the shoes would be too expensive, that already I'd overspent, that maybe I hadn't even enough to begin with. Spotting a bookshop. Glad of the diversion, I stopped the cab. With the help of the driver, we got out and bought Hope a copy of Lolita. <laughs> and no one said it might be unsuitable. <laughs> Hope smiled and held the book, running her fingers over this smooth, unbroken spine. How good it smells, she said softly. I'd almost forgotten. 
The cab driver, a black man with long hair, grinned at us. He was obviously enjoying himself. Where to now, ladies? He asked. I could not answer him. My hands trembled as I handed over the magazine page with the Knightsbridge address. If he'd laughed, I think I would have wept. I was close to it already. But the driver just grinned again and drove off into the blaring traffic. It was a tiny shop, a single window with glass display shelves and just one pair of shoes on each. Behind them, I could see a, a light interior, all pale wood and glass, with tall vases of white roses on the floor. Stop, I told Hope. What's wrong? Is it shut? No. The shop was empty. I could see that. There was one assistant, a young man in black, with long, clean hair. <laughs> the shoes in the window were pale green, tiny like buds about to open. There were no prices on any of them. Onward, urged Hope in her Cambridge voice. I, I, I can't. It, it's... I couldn't finish. I saw myself again, old and colorless, untouched by magic. Unsuitable, barked Hope, <laughs> scornfully. Wheeled me in anyway. For a second, I thought she was going to hit the vase of roses by the door. Left, I yelled, and we missed them. <laughs> Just. <laughs> the young man looked at us curiously. He had a clever, handsome face, but I was relieved to see that his eyes were smiling. I held up the picture. I'd like to see a pair of these, I told him, trying to copy Hope's imperious tone, but sounding old and quavery instead. Size four. His eyes widened a little, but he did not comment. Instead, he turned. He went back into the back of the shop, where I could see the shelves of boxes waiting, and I closed my eyes. I thought I had a pair left. He took them. Carefully, out of the box, all sucked sweet, shiny, and red, red, red. <laughs> Let me see them, please. They were like Christmas baubles, like rubies, like impossible fruit. Would you like to try them on? He did not comment on my wheelchair, on my old and lumpy feet in their porridge-colored slip-ons. Instead, he knelt in front of me, his dark hair falling around his face. Gently, he removed my shoes. I knew he could see the veins worming up my ankles and smell the violet scent of the talc that hope rubs into my feet at bedtime. With great care, he slipped the shoes onto my feet. I felt my arches push up alarmingly as the shoes <laughs> slid into place. May I show you, 
Carefully, he stretched out my leg so that I could see. Ginger Rogers, whispered Hope. <laughs> Shoes for strutting, sashaying, striding, soaring, anything but walking. <laughs> I looked at myself for a long time. This clenched a hot, fierce sweetness in my heart. And I wondered what Tom would say if he saw me now. My head was spinning. How much? <laughs> I asked hoarsely. The young man told me a price so staggering that at first I was sure I'd misheard. <laughs> More than I'd paid for my first house. I felt the knowledge clang deep at my insides like something falling down a well. I'm sorry, I heard myself saying from a distance, that's a little too dear. From his expression, I guess he might have been expecting it. Oh, Faith, said Hope softly. It's all right, I told them both. They didn't really suit me. The young man shook his head. Oh, you're wrong, madam, he said with a crooked smile. I think they did. <laughs> Gently, he put the shoes, Valentine racing car, candy apple red, back into their box. The room light as it was seemed a little duller when they had gone. Are you just here for the day, madam? I nodded. Yes, we've enjoyed ourselves very much, but now it's time to go home. I'm sorry. He reached over to one of the tall vases by the door and removed a rose. Perhaps you'd like one of these? He put it into my hand. It was perfect. Highly scented, barely open. It smelled of summer evenings and Swan Lake. In that moment, I forgot all about the red shoes. A man who was not my son had offered me flowers. <laughs> I still have the white rose. I put it in a paper cup of water for the train journey home and then transferred it to a vase. The yellow croissants were finished anyway. And when it fades, I will press the petals, which are still unusually scented, and use them to mark the pages of Lolita, which Hope and I are reading. <laughs> Unsuitable, it may be, but I'd like to see them try to take it away. Lois Smith performed Faith and Hope Go Shopping by Joanne Harris. 
As a fellow writer, I have to admire the way Harris plants the Cinderella parallel without actually throwing the shoes at you. Women past a certain age have often spoken plaintively of feeling invisible. I'm always grateful to read fiction about the lives of older women. We need more of that. Lois Smith illuminates faith and hope and makes them highly visible. In fact, the two of them become as vivid and exciting as a certain pair of really great shoes. The three works on this program show us that clothes define all of us to some extent. Depending on the circumstance, they function as objects of desire, as a precarious living, as a defiant reclaiming of style and adventure. Oscar Wilde said, one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. To which I'd like to add, if your own brilliance temporarily eludes you and that dress with the zigzag pattern is starting to look a little yesterday, we offer you a third choice. You can always listen to a work of art right here on our show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 